from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. My name is Erdem Moralioglu. Thank you so much for having me do this, by the way. I'm so flattered. We are the ones. We are the ones. It's so nice. It's just an excuse to see you. It's a good, I mean, you go to extreme lengths to to see people. I had to have the whole idea of doing this podcast so I could get you. It's great. That's the things I'll stoop to. Meeting someone in another country often forms an immediate friendship. In 2019, Erdem, the designer of beautiful clothes, and his husband, Philip Joseph, and I were together in Mexico City. They were days of discoveries, searching for the perfect tequila, breakfast at Nido, our favorite spot, eating every taco and tamale we could find. A friendship that began on vacation has followed us home to London, where three years later, we are still talking, discovering, and sharing food together. Here in the River Cafe, with a glass of perfect tequila, that's what we're going to do today. I'm here to read the recipe of pan-fried calf's liver with cavallonero. This recipe serves two. In my case, I would be normally eating the entire recipe all by myself. So I'll begin. What you'll need are two thick slices of calf's liver, sea salt and some freshly ground black pepper, a tablespoon of extra virgin olive oil, 50 milliliters of balsamic vinegar, and also, my favorite part, 50 milliliters of creme fraiche. Now, to serve, you're going to need uh, some braised cavallonero. There's a wonderful recipe for that as well, which I won't get into today. But do keep that to one side and keep it warm. Season the liver on both sides with salt and pepper. Brush a large frying pan with olive oil, and when it's very hot, fry the liver for one minute on each side. Very important that it's only a minute. You could even do a little bit less because you want the liver pink. Add the balsamic vinegar and turn the liver so that it absorbs the vinegar, which will reduce almost immediately. This is the wonderful part. Add the creme fraiche and let it melt into the vinegar. Remove and serve on top of the delicious cavallonero pouring over some of the sauce that we've just made in the pan. Delicious. Delicious and beautifully red. Actually, I haven't really looked at that recipe for a while. It's in our very, very first cookbook. And as why wonderful Erdem, did you choose that well, recipe? Liver is a funny thing to serve. It's a very divisive meal. And liver, I remember as a child, was something that I hated, something my father loved. And gradually, as I grew up, I grew up to love liver. And this recipe is wonderful. I've, I've, I've tried it a few times and it's, and it's always something I so enjoy. However, my other half, Philip, hates liver. So oh. 
This recipe that serves two is really truly a recipe that serves me one perfectly. So it's delicious. If you knew you had an evening on your own, would you say, oh, I think I'll have a liver tonight because it's just me? That is exactly what I do. So if I know that I'm not cooking for both of us, I'll be able to get into offal. Yeah. Which I love. Kidneys? Kidneys I love. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The kind of, and also kind of gamey things I also really, really like. It's interesting about this recipe. I was looking at it again and I was thinking that, you know, before we opened the River Cafe, Richard and I lived in Paris for six years. And the revelation for me was, again, the butchers having veal liver, which is so delicate and the Mm. idea that you'd go to buy liver and there'd be a whole liver they would never have pieces of liver in a tray they'd bring up the whole liver and they would slice it to the thickness that you wanted on the other extreme if you had brains which is another awful i don't know if Mm. you like brains i remember they would bring out the head the head (laughs) of the calf and take the brains out which is a kind of extreme for a 25 year old living from upstate new york and paris and then bringing this love for veal's veal liver back to the river cafe we italianated it both through uh, balsamic vinegar which is made in modena and then as you say the the cavolo nero and when you were growing up and talking just now about growing up with liver was was your father was turkish and your mother was british british so what how did that fit in with a kind of education or awareness of food through two very different food cultures. Well, it's interesting, Ruthie, that you mentioned brains, because literally I remember my father cooking brains. And when he would cook brains, my sister and I would literally take refuge in the basement. <laughs> yeah. It was it was a thing. My father yeah. would every so often go on a kind of awful mm-hmm. tangent. That's that we- O-F-F. A-L, not yes, A-W-F-L. Exactly. Well, for a seven-year-old me, it was <laughs> A-W... Was yeah, exactly. It was the A-W-F-U-L version. Mm. But um, it's such an interesting way to grow up, you know, looking back on, on our childhood. You know, it was all about contrast. My father would make these wonderful kind of Turkish dishes, um, you know, amazing stuffed eggplants and dolma mm. and kufte and lakmajan, and all of these great foods and... And, of course, contrasted with my mum, who's from the Midlands. She was um, straightforward English food, cottage pie, sausage and mash and, you know, good Sunday roast, mm. all, of, all of those kind of good, straightforward dishes. And, and the contrast between the two was, was amazing. Where did your father grow up? Tell me about this Turkish man cooking this incredible food <laughs> from his, you know, it's such an identity. It, well, it's an interesting story. So my father grew up in eastern, eastern, eastern Turkey. So in a place called Antakya, which is mm-hmm. in, in an area called Hatay, which is, is really not far away from the Syrian border. Syrian border, yeah. Yeah, so really very eastern. And um, my father was going to university in Geneva. And my mum was working in Geneva at the mm. time. What year would it be? Oh, this is like in the uh, begin- late 60s, early 70s. And so they met in a cafe, mm, fell in food. love. Say food again, yeah. They absolutely they fell in love over a dish of some kind. And so they fell in love and and then spent um, many years in, in Switzerland and then decided to emigrate to Canada where myself and my twin sister were born. And did he always cook? Could he get the ingredients, do you think, in Canada? Well, I remember the ingredients were always a big, um, it it involved a big family trip to a local Lebanese grocery store called Adonis that was on the outskirts of Montreal. 
And it was amazing because they had a great selection of Lebanese food and, and of course, Turkish food. You know, keep in mind, there's a huge Turkish community in, in Canada as well. But what I remember the most was both my parents cooking and they were both avid cooks. And even I remember my mum making, you know, homemade yogurt. So you'd be having kind of some kind of baked aubergine with my mum's homemade yogurt. And it was, you know, looking back at it, extraordinary, very healthy great food yeah as a child i wanted a hot dog <laughs> or i wanted um you know craft dinner macaroni and cheese i was you know i wanted i was attracted to foods that were very unnatural colors yeah and do you think that was a kind of rebellion or do you just loved unnatural other oh, colors unnatural yeah. color yeah. the more unnatural yeah. the more i you know i wanted i exactly i wanted kind of soda that was yeah. like bright orange yeah. and you know all of yeah. those things that kids of my generation yeah. I think were really yeah. attracted to. Yeah. Do you still crave a coke and a hot dog or have you left that behind? I've left that behind actually <laughs> and, I, and I definitely lean more towards you know my mother's homemade yogurt or yeah. a kind of a wonderful you know roasted eggplant dish from uh, my dad. Are there good Turkish restaurants in London? Do you always cook it at home or do you find places that you can go to? There's some wonderful Turkish restaurants, actually. Um, and where we used to live in Hackney, there's a whole, you know, extraordinary um, Turkish community. And with that, some some really fantastic restaurants. Mm. Food takes you to a culture, you know, that yes. actually, you know, if you asked me about Istanbul yes. you know, in Turkey, I would say, you know, yes, we went to the, the Blue Mosque. We went to the, I thought the Bosphorus was probably the most romantic vision I ever had. But I can mm. tell you that practically at every meal I had to have the way they cook aubergines in Turkey, the way the very thin aubergines with the tomato sauce and mm. the, both the delicacy of the food and the strength and confidence of that food. I yes. thought it was so exciting, the Turkish food yes. that I ate. And do you work in a restaurant? We talk to people who love going to restaurants by themselves and just working. I actually thought you meant had I ever literally worked oh, yeah. in a Have restaurant. Oh, yeah, have you worked in a restaurant? And I, I did work in a restaurant, and it was the only job I was ever fired from. Uh, me as too. A, I as a waiter, I was fired after day one. My, Why? What did you do? I was given the food to deliver to a table, and I think I might have just discreetly pointed at the table to confirm what direction I was going in. Yeah. And the pointing... Perhaps I was gesticulating quite in an animated manner. I didn't think I was, but that was that was it. I had to I had to return my uniform, and it was a, a very short lived career in the restaurant world. In um, where was it? In London. Yeah, London. we were in London. Yeah, um, it wasn't it, it wasn't the River Cafe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was fired on my I think my third day of working as a waitress in Woodstock. And I just kept telling people, please don't get cross with me because it's my first day. But actually, I think I'd been there a week and I was still making the mistakes. <laughs> I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. 
There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. You design the most beautiful clothes. I would say that I probably never in all my years owned a dress with a flower on it until you gave me the most beautiful dress, which I wore over and over. I still wear it. And you've given me many clothes. Your generosity, I wore a dress you designed for your wedding. And I was wondering how in the world of your career, of your profession, how food merges with fashion. Of, Of course, every season there's a show a live fashion show which for the past 15 years we've been able to have twice a year and it's extraordinary and of course after the show there's always a moment where usually I show on a Monday usually Monday morning so inevitably I'll have a kind of quite blurry-eyed lunch with Philip my sister and various friends Mm. just a small little lunch Mm. after after the show so it's um it's kind of a funny moment because you've kind of done this thing. It's a huge body of work yeah. that you've kind of put out into the world that you've been working on for six months. Yeah. And then it kind of ends with um, just a lovely meal with everyone you really, with everyone you really love. Is it always in London or is it in Paris or is it? Always in London because mm-hmm. the show's in London. So it's really actually, it changes every season because it's dependent on where the show is. Tell but us about the last show. The last show we were able to show in the um, Bridge Theatre, which was mm-hmm. which was wonderful. And it was, um, it was really, the last show was a kind of a love letter to the world of ballet, which is a world I, I love and, and very much a world I miss. I think the seed for that collection was probably planted about three years ago when I was invited by the Royal Ballet to design costumes. Mm. And um, there was something about standing in the wings and watching the rehearsals and that kind of moment when the curtains are closed, which is almost kind of slightly Hitchcockian. It's like something's about to happen. The dancers kind of walking across the stage, taking their position. And it was that kind of moment that really kind of inspired the last collection. So beautiful. There's something so different about them and also how short they are and how you get the, in a way, you could almost say a parallel of cooking because when I cook, I always think I've created something really beautiful and then it's eaten and it's over. Yes. And it's like, okay, that's it. And and seeing your show, seeing the, the models walking down Lincoln's and Field and then it's over. Well, you know, it's it's funny. It's exactly as you say. It's that kind of creation of a fleeting moment and, and there's something kind of quite beautiful about having a show that is... Yeah. A fleeting moment, you know, it's eight minutes that you have to be there. I think there's definitely something about having a live audience that gives it 
a kind of an electricity. We talked to an actor who does theatre. Yes. You know, he described exactly what you described as after the show. You're starving and you go out with your yes. friend or somebody who's in the show or you discuss, you know, that's the after. And then before the show, you have to eat because otherwise you yes. need but you're there in this pristine environment of fabric and pins and, yes. you know, what do you do about food? Well, food's really important, actually. And I think for a show, we definitely have a moment where the entire team stops and we really, truly stop for about 45 minutes mm-hmm. and we'll generally get something catered that's usually quite healthy, roast chicken breast with a salad and, you know, something a little bit stodgy to kind of keep everyone going. And particularly like, you know, when you have the entire team are on their feet, the models, everyone is, you know, it's a very kind of, it's quite physical. So um, definitely good to have that moment to stop. And it's a tradition in the studio the night before the show, because usually inevitably it's quite a late night, there is a massive pizza delivery. And so pizza is had by all. Models included? Usually the, the models have been and gone by that moment. <laughs> so so it's all of us in the in the trenches. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Your wedding. Tell Uh, us about where it was. Well, it was at the Queen's house. It's an extraordinary... um, beautiful building kind of tucked away next to the maritime museum um, along the river and it's a very architecturally a very important building and and my other half philip is an architect we've been together for you know over 18 years um and so to do something really kind of special to mark that and celebrate it was was amazing it was beautiful and i thought uh, all the speeches your sisters i remember i remember yours i remember philip's but at the end of yours, do you remember you thanked the movement of brave people who had made a marriage between two men possible? Yes. And I thought that was very moving in that you took it away from your love to a kind of recognition and gratitude, which was, you know, it took us into another part of what love is. It, it was a very kind of important moment for us both to acknowledge everyone who had actually gotten us to the point where we could legally get married. And it was a battle that had long been fought by many, many people, some of whom are here, some of whom are not. And mm-hmm. it felt like um, it was absolutely appropriate to acknowledge that what we were able to do on that day was something that really wasn't 
legally allowed until very recently, which is kind of mind-boggling, really. Yeah. It was a dream, and, and, and I really truly mean that. You know, growing up, the idea that I would be able to, you know, fall in love and, and marry someone, mm. you know, mm. You know, twenty-five years ago, that was yeah. that was something that would be yeah. impossible. Yeah. And I think that it would be interesting to know also about gender and cooking. You know, gender yes. and food, because again, as I alluded to before, about fathers not cooking and mothers mm. cooking, or how certainly my husband's generation, Richard, I mean, he was very definitely kept out of the kitchen. You know, that <laughs> somehow. And then when I spoke to. Christian Anapur, who grew up in an Iranian family, and her father was had such ambitions for her that there was a feeling that if you went into the kitchen, that somehow that's as a woman that would be your role. Yes, you know. And I've heard of other stories of fathers who who really encouraged their daughters not to go in the kitchen. Yes, I would say it's a bit like me. Not well, my generation, we didn't want to learn how to type because we thought we'd be secretaries. Yes, well, we had English degrees, but we would be a secretary. And so, do you think that men in the kitchen is something that is now? more recognized or acceptable or I think it's a really interesting question actually and gender and growing up was a very oh. interesting thing also having a twin who's the opposite sex and you know going through every single stage of your life as someone who is a part of you but the but female so I think you know right from the beginning these kind of constructs of of gender were yeah. kind of almost like not applicable it didn't I didn't you know I would play with my sister's toys, my sister would play with my toys. There wasn't specific roles for specific people within the family. And, you know, when it comes to cooking and my father and my mother, they they definitely very much worked as a team. I would never, ever think that, like, cooking is a woman's role yeah. or, 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 or associated with a gender. That was just not something I ever, I ever did, actually. Do you and Philip cook together? Do you, do, you, do you cook well together? Do you argue? Do you have fun like your parents did? Is it competitive or yes. is it sort of different? Because he's he really loves food, doesn't he? he? Philip loves yeah. food, and he but he's also very specific on the foods that he that he loves, oh. and also quite vocal about the foods he doesn't like. Mm. But yeah, no, Philip's an excellent cook, and also on my list of recipes to read was going to be a lemon tart, but that would have been dishonest because Philip is the one who has made numerous times uh the lemon tart so philip's also an excellent baker he's very he's very very good maybe it's exactly (laughs) that it's the kind of like exact kind of measurements which i will admit that i'm a little bit more of a free spirit in the kitchen so did you put more balsamic vinegar in your calves liver I might, I might have I might have freestyled a little bit with the vinegar. I certainly and the creme fraiche. The creme fraiche, the, yeah. The creme fraiche. I will admit to. I def- love creme fraiche. Do you yes. eat it on other? Do you eat it every chance you get? I love creme fraiche. And actually, the last time I had creme fraiche, really truly, was when Philip last weekend made a lemon tart. Oh. He made your lemon tart, which is quite a big lemon yeah. tart. And so the rest of the evening was spent kind of dividing the lemon tart wrapping each piece in wax paper perfectly, Mm. decanting creme fraiche, and then sending off a piece to my sister and then another piece to another friend so that we wouldn't sit in front of the TV and... Eat the whole thing. Eat the entire lemon tart. Eat the whole thing, couldn't you? Yeah, it might might happen. The foods that we go to when we feel, you know, that we want to eat, not just because we're hungry, but... Because we need some sort of 
comfort. And I was yes. wondering what, what would be your comfort food? I would say my comfort food, because we used to, on occasion at home, and not even on occasion, quite often have spaghetti bolognese. Mm. And my sister can make the most perfect spaghetti bolognese, oh. my twin sister. And so I would describe my comfort food as her spaghetti bolognese. Oh. It's, it's incredibly comforting. Yes, well, makes you quite sleepy actually after you eat yeah, it. Yeah, there's something about the the meat and the pasta. Yes. But anyway, thank you. You're my comfort. Oh, so thank you for coming. You're thank mine. You. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having as me. As well as spaghetti bolognese. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and yeah, comfort food. Okay, thank you, darling. Yeah, thank you. To visit the online shop of the River Cafe, go to shop the River Cafe. River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.